Lynn Hiles Ministries presents That You Might Have Life. He said he didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. So Jesus came that we might have life. The Bible said in him was life, the life was the light of men. The more light you have, the more life you're going to have. So you can have peace was on me. That's why it's called the gospel of peace. He took your punishment so you could get his peace. He took what you had coming so you could get what he has coming. All around the country and around the world, people just like you are awakening to the good news of Jesus Christ. What God wanted to do was release the kingdom of God in your life until the joy and the peace and the righteousness of the Holy Ghost would so fill your life. I don't want to just make heaven my home. I want to make my home like heaven. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you for joining us again today on the program. I trust you've been blessed by what the Word of God that we're sharing. And uh, we encourage you to uh, just make plans to just join us every week at the same time. Uh, just grab you another cup of coffee and sit down. We're going to get into the Word of God. We, we're touching some stuff, I believe, that's really reaching in the hearts of uh, folk who are looking for, I believe there's a high calling of God in Christ that is upon us and people are hungry for how the pieces, especially from the book of Revelation, fit with a message of grace. And we're really trying to unfold that. Uh, it's difficult sometimes in a 26, 28 minute segment to kind of really be able to pack in uh, some of the things that we're sharing with you. But uh, if you be faithful to tune in every week or set your DVR, uh, it would, I believe you'll be blessed by it. Also, let me just say very quickly to you as well that you can go back to our website and uh, all the programs we've aired to date are linked to our website. There's over 200 of them. And we have been teaching on the book of Revelation now for probably about 10 weeks. You can go back there and watch them at any given time that you'd like to. You could also go to YouTube and watch them on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube page. Follow us on Facebook at Lynn House Ministries. Uh, you could also uh, get iTunes. iTunes would give you the audio version, the podcast of what we're teaching here. Or you could download TBN's app to your smartphone or your smart device or your television. And you can literally stream all 10 of TBN's channels anywhere in the world that you can get an internet connection. So you can go back and watch some of the things that we've watched. We've had heard from churches that are uh, watching, that are sharing what we're teaching in their Wednesday night uh, services. They're sharing like a 30-minute segment and uh, and then they're having a discussion about it. We encourage you to do that. We absolutely have no problem with you doing that. We, we, we welcome it. We appreciate it. And, uh, you know, uh, if you want to, you can even order and get our books and use them in part of your class on the revelation of Jesus Christ. It'll be on the screen as you go on through this program. But once again, I want to jump back in the book of Revelation because we were sharing with you last week that as God was, you know, unfolding as we were unfolding this last week, we were talking about how the message to the church was to come up hither, to come up higher. That's not necessarily a geographical relocation as much it is, as it is a spiritual dimension. I believe the church, like no other time in history, is really being given a call into a dimension of the finished work and of seeing this uh, third dimension that we talked about last week. Now let me just for way of review quickly get it and then I want to get into the church at Smyrna because we talked about the book of, uh, uh, of the church at Ephesus, Jeremy and I did about two programs ago. But in chapter 1 
of the book of Revelation. The message or the, the, the church is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. When John turns to see this voice, he turns and sees seven golden candlesticks. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and in verse 12 he said, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks. That means that John, if he had to turn to see, he must have been facing towards the most holy place, because if he had to look back, what he was seeing was the seven golden candlesticks. So where John was looking from was he was looking from the perspective of the most holy place because if he was in the most holy place looking back he would see the candlestick because the candlestick is in the second dimension. And he would say to them he saw Jesus walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation the powerful message that he continues to give to the church is one of repentance. Repent. Now let me say that that's not a bad word even among grace guys. That doesn't mean you need to get saved every week or that you lose your salvation. It simply means that as there is a shift in our paradigm, it gives us access to something greater and a greater dimension. You know, recently I saw somebody post something on my face, or not on my Facebook, but on Facebook, and they were talking about how, I, I believe they were saying that the word revival, for instance, was not in the New Testament, but that uh, the closest thing to it was in the book of Acts, it said that when uh, you repent, God sends times of refreshing. And so uh, when I think about repenting, I don't think about just standing around an altar crying and boohooing and begging God to forgive them of stuff we've already been forgiven of. But I see people who are having a paradigm shift, who are repenting, who are changing the way they think. And the moment you change the way you think is the moment revival really breaks out and times of refreshing really come. I believe the thing that's releasing revival in this country, or that's going to release, I'd rather say it like this, that's going to release a time of refreshing like we've never seen before is not just people standing around with a sin consciousness thinking I'm not good enough for God to touch me and I'm, 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 you know, woe is me, and I'm, I'm unfit, and I'm unholy. No, I believe what's going to shift is when we realize Jesus made me holy. I am purged. I have been forgiven. I am what God said I am. I can do what God said I can do. And the moment there's a paradigm shift in that, it will send times of refreshing, and we'll see powerful manifestation of God's glory sweep the earth. And I believe that what the Lord is saying into these churches is that this whole concept and idea of repentance is more than just sitting around going, oh God, forgive me. And, and listen, I believe that when, I believe there are times, uh, you know, when we, you know, we, 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 we need to, uh, you know, maybe perhaps intercede, groan in the Spirit. But what I'm after is this. The moment you shift the way you think, and that's what He's after in this church. Today, God is still after that in the American church. I, I'm telling you, we've got some mindsets, some mindsets and some concepts that so keep us bound that if we could ever change the way we think, it would shift something in this planet on an incredible level. The message to the church, and let me say this, was relevant to these churches in the first century because these churches were truly churches that were the first churches that these apostles were writing to. He's writing letters to churches who were really in Asia. But it also, though it was not written to us, was written for us because the same things, here's the tragedy, 
the same things that they needed to repent of 2,000 years ago, we still need to repent of today. We still need to change our minds and move from, if I could say it this way, a second dimension of the candlestick into a third dimension of the most holy place. Moving from a God is going to do something to a God has already done something. Moving from a mentality that says I've got to get the victory and moving from the viewpoint that says I'm flowing from the victory. God's already done it in Christ. It's finished. It's done. And I need to stand. And that posture, what that does is sets me up for rulership as kings and priests in the earth. And so these paradigm shifts in these churches are all something that must be shifted in our thinking to give us access to, uh, I believe, what would be in the most holy place. Now let me, I want to go over here into Revelation. Well, we've been two programs trying to get to this, but chapter 2, verse 8 says, I want to talk about one particular church here for the next little season. Under the angel of the church in Smyrna, these things are saith, or these, right, he said, these things saith the first of the last, which was dead and is alive. I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but watch this, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. For none of those things which thou shalt suffer, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation for ten days, but be faithful unto the death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, I think it's really interesting that the word Smyrna here, the whole, uh, uh, the, the word itself means suffering or the bitterness of suffering. And uh, you can find that also. Let me just say this in my book on the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can order that. A lot of stuff that I'm not going to be able to touch is in this book. But in this church, the thing he was dealing with is the church at Smyrna is he's dealing with them about suffering. Now, I, I want to really deal with this just a little bit because I believe one of the areas that we need to shift our thinking about and repent of is our concepts about suffering. Now, he says to them, first of all, before he ever requires anything of these churches, he gives them a revelation of who he is in the midst of this church that will give them the power to shift. So before he ever tells them to repent, he says, let me tell you this. Uh, he says, I know your works. And he, said, uh, he said to the angel of the church of Smyrna, these things saith, watch this, the first and the last which was dead and is alive. So his revelation to this church before he ever deals with what their problem is, is he gives them a revelation, I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm the one who was dead and I'm alive. And that revelation of Jesus to you will produce a revelation of Jesus through you. So in other words, God always gives supply before he gives demand in the new covenant. Under the old covenant, it was demand. In the new covenant, grace is a supply. So what he's doing is he's giving them, in other words, I could say it like this, God is so faithful, he always makes grass before he creates a cow because there's always a supply before there's a demand. So God is revealing himself to the church here at Smyrna whose name means suffering, and he's saying to them, I want to reveal myself to you as the first and the last, the one who was dead and is alive forevermore. And then he goes on to say, I know your works and your tribulation and your poverty, he said, you're, you're going through a lot of stuff. You're going through a lot of tribulation. You're going th through a lot of poverty. And you're going through a lot of suffering. This church's name means suffering. And the reality of it is, as he begins to say that about this church, he said, I know. But in the middle of that, he puts it in brackets. He says, 
but you're rich. See, here's the tragedy to me is we sat in the American church not realizing what we have, who we are, or what we're able to do. And so we live in, right, we live like strangers right in the midst of a, uh, of a promised land. We, 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 we accept suffering. See, there's a lot of suffering. I've got some notes there. There's a lot of suffering that we, have, uh, that we, we undergo sometimes. But we need to understand what suffering we've been redeemed from. See, a lot of people think God is giving them sickness or cancer or, or, or taking their job to process them. See, I, I, believe that's, I believe that's wrong. That's wrong teaching. And wrong believing will produce wrong results. Right believing will produce right results. In other words, if you believe that God's giving you cancer uh, to perfect you, then don't ever get in a prayer line and ask for healing, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, just say, Lord, pour it on all of us. But see, everything Jesus paid for, for us, in His death, His burial, and His resurrection, we do not have to pay for that again. That suffering is suffering we've been redeemed from. We've been redeemed from sin, from sickness, from poverty, and from death. He was wounded for my transgression. He was bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement for my peace was laid on Him by whose stripes we are healed. Jesus paid for it through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And what He paid for in His death, burial, and resurrection, I don't have to pay for it again. The kind of tribulation that we are not redeemed from is that we are not redeemed from when men shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, when they accuse you when they put you out of their company, when they, uh, you know, uh, revile you. They hated Him, so they'll hate us. I mean, the Scripture tells us that that kind of, uh, 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 that kind of tribulation is, is a tribulation that we still experience because we've not been redeemed from that. But as far as sin, sickness, poverty, and death, we have been redeemed from those things because Jesus paid for it completely in His finished work. And, you know, I, when you begin to understand that, uh, you know, on down through here, he tells the church, he said, you are going to have tribulation for 10 days. But be faithful unto a death, and I will give you a crown of life. Now, let me say to you that what I believe he's saying here to this church is he said, you know, uh, you will have tribulation for 10 days. What, this was probably the key that popped this one open to me. Now, if you go back again, once again, in some of the segments we've already rec recorded, we talked about the Feast of Israel, but as we especially talked about in the seventh month, the first day of the month, that there would be trumpets that would sound. And what these trumpets were used for was to announce several things. A holy convocation, they were to gather an assembly, they were to announce a Sabbath or a feast day, and they were also, according to Deuteronomy chapter 14, or chapter 5, verse 14 through 15, they were to remember how the Lord brought you up out of, out of Egypt. They also, the Feast of Trumpets, was to announce the Day of Atonement, and that Day of Atonement was a day of afflicting the soul. That Day of Atonement was also called the Day of the Lord. And so what the, the trumpet is sounding, and let me say again to you, there's just so much to say when you start teaching like this that the trumpet is not just a fat baby with wings on it that stands out on a cloud someday and toots a horn. You're hearing trumpets sounding as you hear the voice of the Spirit. They, they, they blew loud, long, loud blast through ram's horns. 
and a ram's horn comes from the death of a male lamb. So anytime you are hearing the message preached through the death of Jesus or the finished work of the cross, you are hearing a trumpet sound and it is announcing to you, if you will, a day of atonement. Now what that day of atonement was, was exactly 10 days after the blowing of trumpets. In the beginning of the seventh month, they would blow a trumpet. 10 days later, it would be the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, and all this period of time, this trumpet would sound on the first day of, of the seventh month, and all of this season would be a time of afflicting the soul. Now when I think about afflicting the soul, I'm not thinking about, uh, I'm thinking about the soul, the suke, the psyche, the psychology, the psy The word suke, we translate, uh, the Greek word suke is the word for soul. And the word, when he talked about the afflicting of the soul, especially in the Old Covenant, there was two dimensions of this afflicting. One of them was to kind of put down, to, uh, to, to, to uh, you know, to beat down, to oppress. The other was to build up, to exhort, to and establish. What I believe he's simply saying is the afflicting of the soul is coming, bringing this thing to the revelation of what the atoning work of Jesus did. Say it another way. This church is in tribulation for 10 days. Say it another way, Brother House. The moment you get a revelation of what Jesus did in His atoning work, then your tribulation is over and you're going to realize, I am rich because He who was rich became poor so that through His poverty we might be made rich. Let me tell you something. I'm telling you, you're richer than you think you are. You've got more than you know you've got. And sometimes, so many times, we preach stuff like uh, that, that take from us what we really have when somebody needs to declare to you and sound a trumpet that Jesus paid it all and it's time to not live in poverty and sin and sickness and death, but to afflict our soul and get a revelation of what Jesus accomplished in His death and His burial and His resurrection and your suffering days will be over. I think it is incredible that as he goes on to say this, he goes on to say down below that he that overcomes, uh, he said, you know, I'll give him, he said, if you will be faithful uh, to the death he said, I will give you a crown of life. And you know, all of a sudden, I begin to hear the Lord say something to me even about being faithful to a death. I thought, started thinking, you know what? Maybe it's not being faithful. And let me say this. I don't want to diminish the fact that there were some very real martyrs. People have given their lives, still are, for the cause of Christ. To that I, I, I honor, I respect, I deeply, deeply thank God for those who stood, had to give their lives for the cause of Christ. But I also believe there's a people on the planet that need to be faithful to a death that's already been accomplished. Because when He reveals Himself to this church as the first and the last, the one who was dead and is alive, is the revelation He's giving to them is, I identified with you in the first Adam, but through my death, my burial, and my resurrection, I became the last Adam. So that what you begin to see is that you are no longer in Adam, you are in Christ and you are afflicting the soul and what you're realizing is God is not God is not putting me through suffering to kill me I'm already dead and my life is hid with God in Christ and so that his death was not just to give me a pattern of how to die his death was my death I'm going to say it another way Jesus did not die so you don't have to 
Jesus died because you had to. And I believe we mistakenly think he got up, from, let me just say this, he, got, he, he died because we had to, but he got up from the dead to give us a resurrection. So he died to give us a death. And so if we're faithful to that death, that means we learn how to identify with his death, saying, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. His death was my death. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. This spake he concerning what death he would die. He wasn't talking about praise and worship there. He was talking about his death on the cross. And he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The death of Jesus was not just the death of one man. The death of Jesus was the death of all men. And I believe that as you apply that death and you're faithful to a death, you will receive a crown of life. In other words, you will begin to reign in life. That, I believe that crown of life was the golden border or the golden crown that was around the mercy seat in the tabernacle of Moses. And I can say it like this, a crown would be something you set on your head. And what I think God is trying to do is get us to put a crown on our heads. In other words, get something through these thick skulls that we can learn how to rule and reign with Christ because the scripture says, because of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, the gift of righteousness, we reign in life by one Christ Jesus. I believe that's what he's talking about when he says, I'll give you a crown of life. It's a mentality that will produce an abundant life for you when you realize he was the first and he's the last. He identified with you the first for by death. You know, uh, death came upon all men because of one man's sin, but because of the obedience of another, God has conveyed upon those of us who receive his abundant gift of grace. He's bestowed upon us this incredible reconciliation. I like how the message Bible says it. It says one man did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death and another man did it right and got us out of it. But more than just get us out of trouble, he got us into a life. Scripture also says the first man was out of the earth earthy and the second man was the Lord from heaven. He identified with us in the first Adam and through his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, we identify with him in his uh, resurrection and all of a sudden we realize as we afflict our souls and repent, change the way we think, that we, especially about suffering, that our suffering days are over. The devil casts people into prison until... 10 days. What does that mean? It means until you come into a revelation of the atoning work of Jesus, you're going to continue to struggle and you're going to continue to suffer. I think it's interesting that even in Romans 8 where it talks about uh, suffering a little bit, I, I, might could, I might could grab it quickly and, 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 and just especially from the Amplified Bible, I think it's so very, very powerful in here. But Re Romans 8 chapter says, with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a, con a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. But God went for the juggler when he sent his son, when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem of something remote and unimportant in his son Jesus. He personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. 
The law code, weakened as it was, was fractured by human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. Isn't that the truth? We put the law on it. We got band-aids. I had a notion the other day as I was reading this to think, you know what? I'll just stand people up somewhere and just put duct tape all over them and show them this is what we look like when we're sitting under the law. We got band-aids everywhere. You know, just stick them on their face and everywhere. For, that'd be a good, you know, kind of a... Uh, uh, well, example message. It got band-aids everywhere and it hadn't healed nothing. It just keeps it covered up. But grace is the deep healing of sin. Uh, so the law was a band-aid on it instead of deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but couldn't deliver is accomplished as we instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. That's what happens. We've got to quit trying to redouble our efforts, try harder, rededicate, and embrace what the Spirit of God is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into an open, spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God and ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what He is doing and God isn't pleased with being ignored. I think that's powerful. But if God Himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself, of Him than anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. I'm going to skip down uh, on down just a little bit further. So uh, uh, it says, so, but for you, you who welcome Him and who dwells in whom He dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, He'll do the same thing in you that He did in Jesus, bringing you alive to Himself. When God lives and breathes in you, He and He does, as surely as He did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life of sin. God's Spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. The resurrection life you receive from God is not a Grave, a timid, grave-tending life. It's an adventurous, expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our heart and confirms with who we really are, and He knows who He is. We know who our Father, we, who we father and uh, Father and children, and we know that we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We're about to run out of time, but let me tell you that, the, that, that I believe that we don't have to live this grave-tending life. He was the first and the last. He was the Alpha and the Omega. Let me just say to you, uh, tune in again next week. We're about to run out of time. Call that number on the screen. Uh, partner with us. Consider becoming part of our Message of the Month Club and all the stuff that's available to you there. Call us and uh, sow seed into the ministry. We appreciate you. Uh, tune in again next week at the same time as we continue this teaching. This series is about living life in the context of sonship. Jesus is recognized as a son in the River Jordan by his Father. Flowing from his identity as a son, Jesus comes up out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit with incredible demonstrations of the miraculous. He introduces to his followers the new covenant idea that God is more than just an austere judge. He is our Father. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Let us awaken to our true identity and set creation free.